This podcast episode is brought to you by Paleo Valley's Organic Extra Virgin Olive Oil. Now, we all know that many olive oils are cut with seed oils or that they are rancid, and so it's not always easiest to find a quality and properly sourced olive oil. Yes, in case you didn't know, many store bought olive oils are diluted or blended, compromising both taste and quality, and may even cause rancidity. I'm really glad that Paleo Valley's extra virgin olive oil remains pure and unadulterated, sourced from a single organic valley in Greece. Paleo Valley ensures freshness and nutrient content by packaging their olive oil in dark glass bottles. At a certain point, I stopped using extra virgin olive oil, but once our practice started working with people with chronic inflammatory response syndrome or SIRS, we started recommending it for the reduction of TGF beta 1. It is an immune system marker that shows inflammation both for COVID 19, SIRS, and actually many other illnesses. So if your TGF beta 1 is high, you may want to try incorporating a little bit of extra virgin olive oil. Make sure to check it out. It comes in a two pack package. And remember, All Paleo Valley products are guaranteed with a money back guarantee. Go to paleovalley.com slash nwj to get 15% off your order. Thanks for supporting companies that support this podcast. Hey guys, it's Judy from Nutrition with Judy. Thanks for joining me today. While you're here, please make sure to like and subscribe, hit the red button. If you're listening to this on podcast, please make sure to leave a review as this allows my content to get in front of more people. And thank you for that. I had the pleasure of sitting down with Michael Schrantz. He is the owner and founder of Environmental Analytics. He is an IEP, otherwise known as an indoor environmental professional. Mike and the Environmental Analytics is an Arizona based company and they provide comprehensive indoor and outdoor air quality testing services, as well as just providing people with more information about mold, asbestos, and other types of environmental. Illnesses. As you'll see in this interview, Mike is a wonderful resource and he talks a lot about how to really get through all of the mold remediation and what is just practical and what is just an opportunity to heal and also focus on remediation, but in a way that is not completely overwhelming. He gives a lot of DIY tips and things that you can do to even support the home so that you don't even have to get in a place of Risking water damage in a very economical way. There's a lot of hope in this conversation, and I really enjoyed my conversation with him because even for myself, when I'm sharing content about the remediation part of this whole illness of mold or water damage building, there's a lot of questions of how much is this going to cost? Where can I even go into in the future in terms of buildings and exposure? And he just breaks it down and in such a simplistic way and in a way that has a lot of hope so that you don't have to feel that this mold illness or diagnosis is a death certificate. I hope that this conversation provides you a lot of knowledge and even proactivities to how you can protect your hold from water damage. Let's get right into the interview. Hi, Mike Trance. I'm really excited to have you on. So many of the SIRS colleagues always bring you up about how great of an IEP you are. So I'm excited to introduce you to my community and talk about 
a lot of the mold, you know, in the buildings that we live in and what that really means for us. A lot of people are concerned about mold and that it's an endless issue that we can't really fix. So I just wanted to have you share your wisdom with our community. So for the people that don't know you, if you can introduce yourself and let us know who you are. Yeah, absolutely. Judy, thank you uh, for this opportunity. Hello, everybody. Uh, My name is Michael Strantz, owner of Environmental Analytics. I've been doing indoor air quality now. I think this is year 25 for me. Uh, Probably the last seven or eight years, plus or minus, I've been really specifically focused on people with chronic illness, that sort of thing. And as somebody who actually is going through it myself right now, as I'm speaking to you, I certainly can be sympathetic to the struggles that we commonly see. I know we're going to dive into some of those details. So I'm looking forward to hopefully giving you guys some answers, some peace of mind and some direction. That's awesome. So let's dive right into it, as you said. Um, So a lot of people start a carnivore diet or a meat-focused diet because it helps to reduce inflammation. And sometimes they still have lingering symptoms. And then I think of, well, maybe you're actually struggling with SIRS or chronic inflammatory response syndrome. And some of the people will say mold is everywhere. Water damage building, it's nearly impossible to never have a water damage issue in the home. And so what are your thoughts with that? Um, Is there certain tips that the homeowner can use to really mitigate any possible water damage and and just to protect the home? Sure, sure. Yeah. I mean, I guess probably the first and foremost probably goes without saying, but is keep the house dry. Some of us live in more humid climates. uh, And so you don't even have to have a roof leak or a plumbing leak to have some of the struggles that we might find mold growing in ductwork. Uh, mold uh, growing on a wall because moisture has condensed. A classic example is a closed closet that gets poor circulation and that house has high humidity. Keeping the house uh, dry is key. A lot of times people ask, you know, is there a range, uh, something that's acceptable? And, you know, it depends on the time of year, but in the summertime, you know, typically we like to shoot for 50% or less. We understand that there's going to be times, rainy seasons, where it spikes up a little bit higher and then it maybe trickles back down. We're looking for trends. Um, it's not that 51% relative humidity in your house is you're going to all of a sudden have mold growing everywhere. But what we're trying to do is get it to a level that gives you a little bit of wiggle room. That way, if there's some other conditions in the home that aren't perfect or more ideal for mold, they're still not going to want to grow. Because what most of us maybe know is that mold's abundant. It's everywhere. We don't live on planet Mars, despite, despite some of the blogs and information that people unfortunately find themselves reading at times, it can feel overwhelming. It's like, oh my gosh, if I have a mold spore lands on me, my arm's going to fall off. And that's just not true. But we do want normal fungal ecology and those that ecology, if there's enough moisture, will find an environment to grow in. It's not if, it's more of wind. And to the point about having zero mold or it's impossible, I hear you. I see you. Um, I think the problem is, is that people haven't drawn a hard line of what's acceptable. And I know we're going to dive into that a little bit more, probably in the context of sampling and what can it really tell you. But, you know, we don't need to freak out or be overwhelmed if we have a little bit of mold growing in your sink drain or on your grout line in your shower. I'm not saying that one should ignore it, but we're, the expectation is not a bubble on Mars. Uh, The expectation is that the ecology, the variety, the quantity of mold that you're normally being exposed to is in fact what you're being exposed to. And if, if that resonates with you, the listener right now, and you're like, well, I've tried that, or you think you've tried that, there are little tweaks that you can do along the way, better filtration, mechanical ventilation. There's other things that you can do uh, to really improve the indoor air quality. But no, we're not looking for zero mold in the house. We're just looking for a nice balance of indoor and outdoor. 
And then when you talk about the um, humidity levels, is there a gadget or something that you recommend just testing the home? Because I don't think most people know what level of humidity they even have in their home. Yeah, great point. Um, You know, you can go on Amazon these days and buy yourself uh, what's called a hygrometer uh, uh, and just type in relative humidity gauge and, you know, spend... I found one the other day on sale for six bucks. You know, you might spend 10 to 15 bucks on one, you know, double A battery type thing. It doesn't need to be a thousand dollar meter. We're not trying to do some sort of a study. Uh, what we want to get ranges. And what I often tell people is if you're in a multi-level home, buy one per level. Moisture diffuses, so you don't need one per room. I mean, if, you, if you're if you an analytical person and you're just that type of individual, by all means, put one in each room, but that's a little excessive. Common area. Let's see what we're getting. Or if you're like, you know what? That closet that Mike mentioned earlier with the condensation and mold growing on my shoes, I'm curious about that one. Maybe I'll stick one just in that closet, but at least one per level. And again, look for those levels trending 50% if you're in a really humid climate uh, like Houston, Texas yes. or uh, Miami, Florida in the summertime, you know, 55%, you know, could be marginal, but you start creeping up above that. You get into the sixties and even in, start to flirt with the seventies, you're really going to put a condition conducive for mold growing on surfaces throughout your home. And obviously that's a concern. And then what about leaks? So, you know, a lot of people will have a bathtub leak or a toilet leak and even a faucet leak. And then there's, you know, water that they clean up, but how do we know that it didn't get into the crevices? How do we know, what can we do in that moment to ensure that the risk of mold growth between the wall or between the, the moldings aren't going to happen? Yeah, sure. So I'm thinking, you know, right off the bat, when we talk about DIY is do we have a handheld moisture meter that we we can have on hand? They have online, again, whether it's Amazon, Home Depot, Lowe's, your big box stores uh, can buy yourself a, a what they call a non-intrusive, which is kind of a scanning uh, moisture meter. We'll use my phone as the example where you can literally use what's a relative scale and look for evidence of moisture. You can buy a, 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 a very reliable for what we're talking about moisture meter. For 50 bucks or even a little bit less if you find a good sale. And to your point, if you notice you've had a leak, you know, what a lot of people will do is say, okay, there's where the water is. They put the moisture meter on, the moisture meter goes off, there's a big shocker, but then they'll start to work away from that area and go, do I see evidence of the water creeping into the wall? Oh my gosh, it looks like it's wicking up the drywall. And I think the sooner you're able to get on that, the, the less potential there is for microbial growth. If a piece of drywall gets wet, Mold's not going to start growing five minutes later. Uh, under ideal conditions, you might have mold growing anywhere between 24, 72 hours. But if you, and so a lot, a lot, a lot of people do in terms of preventative little hacks is yet another term, moisture alarms, which I have in my home. You can buy on, here it is again, Amazon. You can buy uh, these little moisture alarms that you put nine volt batteries in, mm-hmm. stick it where your plumbing sources are at. They're cheap. They're like the cheapest insurance you could ever buy. In fact, it actually saved me a legitimate kitchen sink leak because it went off and lo and behold, my garbage disposal was leaking and I caught it, saved myself a three, $4,000 mold remediation job. But I still took my moisture meter and I saw, was it just local? Did it stay within this area or did it go up onto the walls? So a couple of cheek haps, uh, a moisture alarm, moisture meter, put those in your guys' toolbox, have those in your home will avoid a lot of issues that unfortunately some of us are, are have gone through already. That's fascinating. I, I love those um, tools. So thank you for that. In terms of, so let's say we believe that 
you know, we're not feeling well, we've cleaned up our diet, and then maybe it is mold. And there are so many different types of tests. There's the air sample for mold, there's the army testing, and then these, yeah. there's a, a version of that, the hurts me too. You know, what is, you know, in your world of things, what is the ideal testing that we should do, especially if we think we are suffering from like a biotoxin illness? When I looked at all of your wonderful questions that you were kind enough to send me beforehand, that was probably one of the most loaded questions, <laughs> fantastic questions, but it's complicated. Uh, the shorter answer is when people initially want to dip their toes in the water and do some initial sampling, maybe they don't want to invest in an indoor environmental professional, which on, on, on the large is what we always recommend because people get stuck, they get confused, they don't know how to interpret the samples. But getting beyond that for a second... If we were just to do DIY, I typically am a fan of uh, MSQ-PCR. Most of you may know that as an ERMI sample. It's basically DNA-based sampling. It's targeting 36 organisms, species, and for mold. And it's what's great about that particular type of sample that many of you may not know is that in the world of mold, mold is organic like us, and they break down over time. And so if you had a mold source in the house and it was hidden, and you didn't know where it was at, right? Is that a lot of that mold has broken down into fragments, and the and the and the um, the studies that are readily available, I even have them on uh, my website, show that for every one mold spore, there's 300 to 1,000 fragments. So there's way more fragments of mold than there are spores in a given setting. Why is that important to this conversation? Well, because an ERMI sample uh, can usually detect those as long as it's one of those 36 molds, and there's DNA in that uh, part, that fragment. I like ERMI sampling because personally, I've done thousands of them. I'm published with the EPA on a study comparing them to some air samples, which I know is another question. And I find that it's just better able to detect sources. But the problem is cost. How many samples can I afford? If you find out that you're going to spend somewhere between $240 and $300 on average per ERMI sample, if you do it yourself, that may present a financial constraint for you. Or maybe your spouse is sitting there bickering at you right about now going, we ain't going to spend that money. And so there are other options. There's a lab called Immunolytics, which offers um, gravity plates like Petri dishes that you can analyze in your home. And I think it's $33 per sample. You could do multiple in your home to see if there's any viable, that means it can able to grow mold spores in the environment. Does it detect those fragments? No. Does it detect non-viable mold? No. But is it a great baseline to dip your toes in the water and say, man, it looks like the basement in our house is really like spiking up compared to the other uh, levels of the home. That's true. Beyond that, Judy, what ends up happening, as you might imagine, is what do we do with that information? Because normally it doesn't lead to the homeowner or occupant going, ah, Clearly, it's hidden in the west wall in the living room area or whatever. It normally leads to saying, well, it looks like we have an issue, and now we need to hire boots on the ground. Uh, Taking a breath for just a moment, when we talk about air samples, because I know that's part of that question, a lot of people hear, like, what's the gold standard? You know, what should we be doing if we are hiring a professional? If by gold standard, you mean what's normally done because it's convenient and easy, it's typically spore trap sampling. These little cassettes that people stick on a pump and they'll collect a five or 10 minute sample, see what's in the environment in the air, uh, and then report the findings. But I know that in our own inner circles with other individuals, this topic has probably presented itself, which is as well, what is it not detecting? Is it limited? Is it enough? 
Why is it that we had a mold inspector come out and do spore trap sampling, say everything was good, and then we did an ERMI sample, and now we feel like we have to burn our house down? And a lot of that is this whole thing about balance, knowing how to, to interpret a sample. Spore trap samples aren't identifying fragments. They're not speciating the mold, so we don't get that resolution of where could this species be coming from. And to be honest with you, think about it for a second. You live in a sedentary environment indoors. Gravity wins. So unless you have a really high exposure of something going on, you might miss a lot that's not in the air. It's on the surfaces. Hey guys, just to let you know, my Carnivore Cure book is back in stock. For nine months, it was out of print and used prices were up to $300. Make sure to get your copy today that has over 200 colored tables and graphics and over 400 pages of meaty goodness. We have a limited supply, so get your copy today on Amazon.com. And if you can leave a review, I'd be super grateful. So what I'm hearing from you is that maybe you use some of those dishes if it's a financial cost, and then you can see if there are some that are just really being able to be viable, as you mentioned. And then if you do have some finances, if you can maybe do an ERMI or so, if that's really the the step you want to do. But otherwise, if these Petri dishes end up having some viable mold in it, then probably the best step is to hire a trusted IEP to really go out and do an assessment. Yes, ma'am. There are, there are the way that the industry is set up now, fortunately, is, is there, are, even if you live in a place where you don't have a trusted boots on the ground inspector, you don't know of anybody, that sort of thing. There are, there are professionals that are qualified that offer virtual services and are able to help you guide you. And if, and again, if, if, if someone was listening was my family, I would say, please reach out to the IEP first. And the reason for that is, is that the, the Petri dish sampling is a little bit different because you can really do a few for not that much money. But the problem with Hermes is their big, one of the biggest complaints is the cost. Yeah. And so if someone makes the mistake of going out and collecting one on each level, they might get some good baseline. Um, but they've already now, if, if you've done three, to use that example, you're $750 on average into the, into the sampling cost. And you're like, well, man, maybe I should have, held off on all that money and used it towards an inspection or split the difference or did a little DIY, a little bit of, so there's a lot of nuance in there that does matter. The other thing I just want to say real quick on Ermes is this might be a little surprising to some people, but we actually aren't looking at the Ermes score. And that's maybe a little bit weird to hear because it's an Ermi. And the big thing that's known about an Ermi is that it does produce a score. Uh, So it's like a group of these molds minus a group of these molds. And there's a log formula involved and it creates a score. And then you look at that score and it's on a graph, a curve. And it's like, oh, your house has a 80% chance of having a mold burden. A lot of IEPs that have used this in this industry, working with people who have various forms of chronic illness, do not rely on the score. It's misleading. And typically, in my experience, can can produce what you would call as a false positive. You think there's a problem and there's not. So what we're looking at, and hence the recommendation for an IEP, is we're looking at the individual mold types and their quantities and the relationship between, say, other measures like outdoor control data or things of that nature to say, oh, you know what? This is elevated or that is normal. Um, But you did ask earlier on your questionnaire about Hertzmies, which are kind of like in the same category of an ERMI. What's the difference between an ERMI and a Hertzme for those of you? ERMI has 36 molds. Hurts me has five molds. Those five molds are also included in the ERMI panel, but the uh, Hurts me score 
is, in my opinion, actually a better indicator. It's not perfect, but a better indicator of a potential exposure than the ERMI score. And the reason for that is, is that Dr. Richie Shoemaker, which most of us, some of us are familiar with that name, created this based off of his research with folks who had CIRS and concluded that these ranges and types that people weren't recovering when, when these molds were over a certain quantity. So his scoring system, which if anybody knows anything about this, they're looking for like a 10 or less, 12 and a 14 are marginal, and the 16 and above are failing. I feel I've in the field from doing hundreds upon hundreds of samples, when I typically find a problem in a home, the hurts me score is typically elevated. Without, when I typically don't find a problem or whether I do find a problem, the hurts me score t- ten, or the ERMI score, sorry, tends to be elevated. So in short, if you absolutely can't hire a professional, and there might be a variety of reasons for that, consider doing maybe one ERMI sample if you have the budget to get a, a, a general idea, because you might end up working with an IEP afterwards where we can take a look at that data. Or if you're really pressed for, for money, Look at Immunolytics. This is a company name that offers gravity plates. You can go on their website, very easy to follow so that you can get an idea. Do I need to pursue this further or can I just take these samples and say, okay, this is good enough. My doctor wasn't even sure that this was an issue anyways. And I feel like we can shelf the mold exposure concern for now. So talking about those numbers, the ERMI and the hurts me, and thank you for that. That was really helpful. You know, when we talk about hurts me and we say that the ideal or based on the studies from Dr. Shoemaker, it's 10 and below is what will allow people with chronic inflammation to heal. And then you mentioned 14 is maybe that iffy range, but have you seen people and here's, here's the context in my practice. So I've had many, many people now run ERMI scores, run hurts me two scores. And I would say one person had a within range of both. Now, not everyone is much higher than the, maybe it's the hurts me two is 14 or a little bit less than that, but there are people that are above that. And so what are your thoughts? I mean, are these numbers, so the ERMI and just for the listeners and um, watchers, but the ERMI score, the, the recommendation is under two and I rarely ever see that. So the ERMI, yeah. What are your thoughts with like, and I know there's a lot of peer reviewed studies and stuff, but are the, do these numbers have to, because this is the biggest, most daunting part of this whole chronic Mm -hmm. inflammation um, illness, but do these numbers have to be that low for people to heal? Yeah. So I think it depends. It's a great question. Uh, it depends on the situation. We know that everyone's genetically different. And so, you know, I've seen people with a, a hurts me score, uh, which again is the shoemaker scoring of a 16 get better. I've seen people with a hurts me score of an eight, which is passing, uh, not get better. It's, it's an indicator. The other day, uh, yesterday, I had a client who had a hurts me score of a 10 on her upper level, uh, which it technically is passing. But one of the main reasons that she got that score was because there was a particular mold on there, ketonium, which is a hydrophilic water loving mold. That's a good indicator for water damage that was elevated. So we're not blind to just the score. We're looking at the individual molds and no, it's not, it's not an, it's not a, you have to, or else it's interesting. You brought that up because as I know you've worked with it's not just about CIRS. There's other clients that cross your door, Lyme, SIBO, and the list goes on. And the problem is, is they don't make a hurts me score for Lyme. They don't make a hurts me score for PANS or PANDAS or SIBO or Alzheimer's. But so a lot of those industries, those illnesses, and the people that work to, to improve those conditions end up deferring to the hurts me scoring because 
that's the best thing they have going. I wouldn't hang your hat on a passing hurts me or a failing or a borderline hurts me score by itself. I would just use that as kind of like a, what ballpark am I in? Wow, that's interesting. I have a 16 as my score or a 14. Could I have a problem? This is when you're normally working with a professional because at this point you might find out that, you know what, you live in Miami, Florida, which is common and well-documented to have high counts of Aspergillus penicillioides, one of the five Hertz V molds on that panel. And it's normal to have elevated levels in a lot of those homes because it's so common outside. But move that same condition into Arizona where it's dry, hot, but dry. And all of a sudden that same quantity is a lot more suspicious. The region, the geographic location and the time of year for an IEP is important to consider when we're interpreting these results. Because if we relied on the test results score alone, we'd probably miss a lot of things on both sides. Um, A good thing, a bad thing, a finding or lack thereof. Yeah, no, no, that's very helpful. So thank you for that. I, I think what I'm getting from all of this is really find a trusted professional and they can do a lot of the an, um, analysis of all of the data, the circumstantial, even your location and everything else, and even your illness with that, because I think a lot of those come into play. So um, thank as you. Much as, as much as I want to say no, that that is the reality. I'd love for somebody, Judy, to be able to press a button and say, we did this test, boom, there it is. And I think you would agree that the, the industry hasn't done the best drop job making a person feel otherwise. I mean, it's like do this kit and it's the score and it's e- it feels easy and it feels like it should be easy to interpret and it's not. But yes, if you guys can, absolutely. There's a lot of, we can get to this later, but there's a lot of resources for uh, those of you listening or watching to go pursue. Some of it's even free uh, that you can learn more about to say, you know what, you're right. I do need to work with a professional without a doubt. I've, I've read in several of, I don't know if it was Dr. Shoemaker's books, but in some of the, you know, mold experts, they say that if you have a crawl space or a basement that you're pretty much susceptible to mold. Have you seen that too? I, I haven't seen, I I know that Richie writes a lot on that sort of stuff. Um, yes, crawl spaces, um, are a huge consideration. I'm a little bit biased because a lot of people that come to me with homes with crawl spaces, when we end up pursuing them, they end up having a lot of potential sources. I think that how you might look at it as a listener is that if you have a crawl space, that could be a low hanging fruit issue that needs to be addressed in terms of a microbial source. What about basements? Yeah. um, uh, It's interesting, right? Whether it's a finished basement or an unfinished basement, um, moisture migration coming from the underground into the wall system, uh, increasing the moisture levels in the basement, especially if it's a finished basement. So now you can't really see the walls where the moisture is coming in per se can be a challenge too. I would say crawl spaces uh, are between the two uh, are number one concerns in terms of the odds. And then close number two would be basements, something that definitely should be looked at further. Okay. There's a lot of people that if you look online and you search about how to clean mold and you hear so much about use mold and there's all these products that you can buy from Home Depot and all these big box stores, as you mentioned, is that a smart idea to just, you know, get rid of the black mold or some of the mold that you see? Yeah, I mean, it depends, right? Uh, Where's the line between homeowner maintenance and taking care of some topical thing that you can clean in your shower on your grout lines versus maybe something on drywall that can indicate a much bigger thing? Not to mention if the person doing that clean is susceptible, do we really want that person's face kind of all in it, so to speak? The other thing is there's a lot of confusion about the killing versus removing aspect of it. When our parents raised us, we were in a generation of 
killing is the solution. We were worried about pathogenic disease like aspergillosis growing in your lungs and not an inflammatory response. Um, if you and or your doctor think that you are experiencing an inflammatory response to mold, then it does not matter whether it's alive or dead. And so killing the mold, you know, I saw it. So I sprayed bleach on it as a classic example is not the solution. Physical removal is, I think you have to take each situation case by case, but I generally agree that if it's mold on grout line tiles and showers, that typically that's more of a homeowner maintenance item. We're not going to have you call a remediation company and set your bathroom under containment because that's just not practical. And in terms of products to use, you know, again, surfactants, dish soap and water thing, we're trying to loosen the surface tension of the stubborn mold and remove it from that surface, not worrying about killing it. And I realize that sometimes it takes a little bit of elbow grease to remove it, but we don't need harsh chemicals. We don't need to uh, spray a bunch of bleach all over the place. What we want to do is remove it. Um, and that way it's not there anymore. Okay. Thank you. Uh, do you recommend there's some providers that say if you're, you know, because we're talking about the particles and when the mold breaks down and um, they're, and then they're on the floor and they may end up on all your furniture and your everything else that you own. So there's some providers that say, if you are suffering from chronic inflammation or some type of chronic illness, that you should just get rid of all your stuff because you can't guarantee that it's off. And I've had many clients that had a very hard time doing that. Some people have just stored it in a storage unit, but what are your thoughts? Do we need to remove or re get rid of all of our, the things that we own? Sure. Another great question. Contents are another top topic with many clients based off of my own research. And I did an actual interview on IEP radio podcast that I do uh, episode 19 on con contents, linens, and that sort of thing is that the short answer is it depends. There's a big difference between mold growing on a substrate and it's hyphal fragments growing into the um, fabric material versus settling. Uh, as way of example, uh, right now, as we're talking with each other, we have mold spores, mycotoxins from outdoors and settle, settling on our shirts. And we're not going to throw away our shirts when we're done with this interview. We're going to launder it like we normally do and wear it again in the future. And, and I generally of that mindset is we want to be careful. We don't assume there's no problem, but we usually take a look at that item and say, okay, is there actual mold growing on it? I don't see it anywhere. Okay. Does it smell musty? No, I don't smell it musty. Do I feel weird when I put the item on? No, I don't feel weird. Okay. Well, that item sounds like it can be laundered. Other porous items, it's similar, but you wouldn't launder a book. You can't launder a sofa. So each one of those cases are looked at it also individually and then said, okay, how can we clean these items? What I am holistically against is an automatic assumption that you need to throw things away because you had uh, mold growing, let's say, in the master bathroom. So you threw away all your stuff in the master bedroom. Mm -hmm. uh, I think you need to take a look at that. And, and Judy, not to go on about this, but it, since it's such an important topic, contents and what you read online a lot of the information, if you really get into the science of it, if you if you force that individual to say, where is this coming from? You'll find out it ends up just being a personal experience of fear. In other words, it's not reality uh, in many cases. I get it. Some people had to reset their clock because they were so sensitive. Um, there were just too many variables going on. It was literally easier for that individual to throw everything out. But if you were to ask me, Mike, you see 10 to 15 clients a week and you've been doing this for years. What is the pattern that you normally experience? That is not it. Normally what it is, is 
okay, you're right. This item has growth on it and there's no intrinsic value. So throw it away. This, these items you want to keep, but they're just kind of, there's a lot there and we need to like deal with them later because you're trying to deal with your home right now. So we have them box them and seal them in plastic sealed containers with a little rubber gasket on the lid. Um, and non-porous items for that matter, unless there's actual mold growing on that table leg or something that in nature, normally you're just wiping those items down. So Shorter answer is that you don't have to throw anything away, even if it has mold on it. But of course, we don't want to leave a bunch of moldy items throughout your home. They need to be addressed on a case-by-case basis. Sure. And then what about particle cleaning? So my understanding is that, let's say someone works with an IEP, they get an estimate for the things or the protocol they need to follow to get rid of some of the mold that they found. And then the remediators come in and clear out some of the mold in a very careful manner. And afterward, then there may be some particle cleaning. Is that some way to, I guess, salvage some of your products? And what does that really entail? Yeah, right. I mean, what does small particle mean to one person, to what it means to another? The the term small particle cleaning uh, came from, in large part, from like the CIRS and those types of communities. And it was meant to be a general expression of just doing more than HEPA vacuuming surfaces or filtering the air with HEPA air filtration devices, that there was more care and time, more steps, if you will, to clean it. Um, But it doesn't always directly translate to the contents. When we talk about content cleaning, we talk about content cleaning in addition to cleaning the home and the air and the surfaces. And so you could do small particle cleaning with respect, but what we often tell people to do, if it's a larger thing, a concern is like use the books in my background. If this room had a mold problem in it, we would normally take all of these items and uh, box them up again, plastic sealed containers, take them outside, deal with whatever the immediate situation is. And then before we bring those books in, we would have an assembly line. And depending on the finish of that surface, we might just be wiping down each book or quickly have a vacuuming it. We're not going to soak it. We're not going to spray it. And for those of you who are like, yeah, I get it, but maybe there's still a little bit of something in there. Well, I don't want to split atoms on today's conversation about, well, how do you know there's not something there to begin with from when you bought the book, but you could take that item that you cleaned then and stick it in a nice clean plastic sealed container to bring it into the home because now it's sealed off. You don't have to worry about anything within reason. And then you can deal with those items down the road once you finish your home. When we tell this to people, 90, 95% of them instantly feel that stress level go down because they're like, oh, you see, I felt like I was getting stuck with having to deal with a book and I'm trying to remediate my house and the book's getting in the way. And it's like, don't. The truth of the matter is, is that we just don't have a lot of information about is this book is an example worth saving because by the time you get done doing all the expensive sampling to analyze it, you could have bought this book 10 times over. So we're trying to deal with the realities that most of you and myself included have gone through personally. And what I have found through my own assessments is that these items aren't carrying large bats of mold or large reservoirs. There's not a mold monster in that book spewing out mycotoxins or mold structures out there, but they may have a little bit of settled things on there. And by the way, for those of you who might be wondering about the whole mycotoxin topic, because what if it absorbed into it and all of those sorts of things, I'd like to present two hopefully productive considerations. Number one, consider that if that mycotoxin is something that is otherwise not able to be wiped off or removed, because after all, your concern is the physical interaction with that book 
right. the opening of the book and the releasing of some mycotoxins that likely would occur if there was any absorption into it on the surface as they're readily available. Follow me on this is that if you wipe it down and you have a vacuum in, and the mycotoxin is so stubborn, number one, that it's not going to be removed, kind of begs the question of what's the health concern? Because it's not being removed with aggressive cleaning. You're touching that book more aggressively than you do when you read it. The other thing that might be a little bit more um, pleasing to hear is consider the half-life. There is limited information. So I tread lightly with this, but food okay. for thought is... The half-lives for a lot of mycotoxins are in the order of hours, days, weeks, maybe months. Oh, okay. So is that every mycotoxin in the world? Well, we don't know. I don't know if we sampled every mycotoxin in the world or identified it, right? They keep on finding new species of mold and that kind of thing. But the point I'm making is that this is not some in, in, in forever sort of thing. And I think a prudent thing of reasonable rationale, working with an IEP, you can look at your inventory and say, okay, you've done this cleaning. They've been isolated for this long check in with your home. How does it look? How are you feeling? And then say, okay, let's start to reintroduce some of these books. You can do that. There's other things people will try like ozoning it or hydroxyl radicals. And these are things you can try, but there's not an easy way that you can sample your individual items to verify its success. Source removal is key. Contents can be saved, but you're going to have to take a look at each one. I love it. I love everything you said, because I also believe that the level of fear and anxiety and everything of every place I'm going into every product I touch, can there be mold that level of stress on your body will not allow your immune system to heal too. And so it you're bringing so much practicality to this and living in an environment that's just naturally moldy food. And so I love it. So thank you for everything you just shared. Um, I've been getting so many of my clients asking me, what's the way to clean everything? Do I just need to throw everything away or do I need a HEPA everything? And I just appreciate so much what you just shared. So thank you for that. In terms of climate. So some people I've noticed that I would say almost half of the people that are testing are in Florida. There are some people in Texas and I see that trend with the SIRS. I don't know if you've seen certain locations have more chronic illness patients. Um, So that's one question, but so then should everyone just move to the drier climate? So just curious your thoughts. Yeah. Yeah. We've, we've, we've explored that. I think on the short answer is I don't, I think you can make any environment work and that there's no statistical information that I have my hands on that would help entertain that question. Okay. However, I do agree that the more humid climates, the two States you mentioned, you know, I'm thinking North Carolina, Georgia, yes. Louisiana, you know, all those coastal areas do present a third challenge or the second challenge, which is just general moisture in the air. We talked about this a little earlier, and I find that that's challenging because it it makes the environment like things all of a sudden like ductwork, your air conditioning system. Now, all of a sudden in dry Arizona desert, for example, where I live and my background's in HVAC, we can still have mold and bacteria growing in the system, but it's kind of more of a, in my experience, it ends up being a secondary thing where it's like, yeah, you can look, but you don't often find things. Go to Miami, Florida. And if you ask any reputable IEP, that's probably the number one location they'll start with before they look at your house, because you're so much moisture that these systems are up against and they're trying to remove it and things are condensing and mold is growing that that's a threat. So if I had somebody who is in, I've seen people that are in humid climates move to drier climates and report success. I will also report this to you. I'm starting to see, and again, it's not a statistic, but it's just more of an observation at this point is that I'm seeing people where 
if they grew up in a certain climate, so their body, their immune system kind of was built around that environment, and then they move uh, to a totally different environment, all of a sudden, other issues start to pop up left and right. Like, oh, I got allergies or I feel stuffy. And it's not may have nothing to do with the home. It's just different microbials. If we're talking about that sort of thing, mold and bacteria are are present. There's a lot of the same, but there's different ones. And so I don't think a person should automatically jump ship. What we oftentimes do because of the uncertainties, we'll say, well, is there any way that you could go do an Airbnb or stay with a family member in that area for a month and track your symptoms? You're not symptomatic. Okay. I hear you work with your doctor and track whatever markers they're using. Are they using blood markers, urine, whatever the cluster of symptoms, a VCS test, a neuroquant, whatever they're using, you might, it might be worth it because I don't need to tell you this. If you're getting ready to uproot your life and move from location A to location B, doing a little bit of that sort of mold sabbatical recon might save you a heck of a headache down the road and make you feel assured. And here's something that you said earlier, your stress levels go down because you've already sampled it. You already know what it's like. It's okay. I actually feel better when I'm in this environment. We see this often. And then you brought up HVAC. So do you recommend, um, and maybe it's depending on the climate, but is there a certain lifespan that we should be looking at the HVAC? Um, you know, h- how do we best support the HVAC to not become a breeding ground of mold? Inspecting versus replacement, two different things for me, obviously. Uh, it, with the replacement, it's like, well, what has it run in? Is it functional? Uh, I have a train unit that's uh, in our home that's really old. It's got to be working 20 something years. And I have another one. It's a Linux unit that I replaced, you know, five, six years ago. Um, so there's the shelf life, the functionality of it will vary. Um, and you can always have an air conditioning company come out and check the health of it in that respect. In terms of inspection, though, this whole mold piece, yeah, it kind of does depend on where you live. I mean, if you go online, you'll see that there's some differences, but you'll normally hear a trend of, like, for example, cleaning your ductwork every three to five years. There's some people that say do it every two years. If I lived in Miami, Florida, knowing what I know, I'd have my uh, air conditioning system inspected at, at the end of each season, each summer season. So once a year, it's you get through the summer season, the use, have it inspected, do any sort of cleaning that might be needed. Again, I'm just kind of broad stroking these topics right now, but that's when I would do it because it doesn't take three years for mold or bacteria to proliferate, to grow uh, in your evaporator coil or nearby ductwork. It can happen in days, right. uh, but I don't think it's realistic to have somebody check their thing weekly. It's either it's doing it or it's not. If you've never had it inspected, have it inspected now. Because there's, again, without diving into all these different options, there are things you can do to help prevent microbial growth from growing in your evaporator coil uh, that doesn't require a replacement of a system. There's hacks you can do, a certain UV bulbs and that sort of thing you can do to sanitize or sterilize the surfaces uh, so that you don't have to feel like you're at a loss if you live in a humid climate. It's like, well, that's great. I live in Louisiana. It's always humid over here. What do I do? It's like, we don't have to throw your HVAC system away. Let's take a look at it first and see what's going on. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And then in terms of the air filtration, you know, there's all those smaller units for rooms and then there's okay. the whole home. Do you think there's a specific one? I mean, assuming that money is not a question, do you yeah. think there's one that's more ideal than the other? No, there's many brands, in my opinion. Uh, Honeywell makes one called the 300. 
obviously, you know, you have the higher end models price wise, like an Austin air, the bedroom machine, those run about a grand. I have one of those in my master bedroom. What you'll hear me talk about more often is not so much the brand, but the technology being used. And what I mean is there's a difference between filtration and purification with filtration, as it might sound like you're filtering the air, you're physically removing what might be in the environment. That's it. Purification, which I understand can be confusing to some of you because some filtration only companies use terms like purification on their website. It's because it's a marketing term as well, unfortunately. But technically, to get to the point, purification are things like UV light, hydroxyl radicals, ionization, these sorts of things. And the reason why I'm a little bit more hesitant on those is because they can produce things called byproducts. And I love using this example. It's corny, but it's very, it works. If you take an ozone generator, which I wouldn't recommend you using period, but it's a purification device to a candle store at a mall, not even sure we have malls with candle stores anymore. And you turned it on. One of the byproducts would be formaldehyde. Oh my gosh. So this is what I mean by byproducts. Do I think that everything's going to byproduct into formaldehyde? No, but the problem is, and and these companies aren't tripping over themselves to tell you all about the things they don't know, is that you don't know if a given environment with a certain technology may adverse may react adversely and create a byproduct. So do I see it plaguing homes? No, I don't. More often than not, I hear compliments. I feel better when I use it. But we've seen people, and I don't know if there's a trend of they're just chemically sensitive or not, but we have had a dozen, half a dozen clients where they turned on their purification device and they actually felt worse. So is that a limbic system issue? Is that a, uh, no, it's creating byproducts and they can fill it. The point I'm making is, is if you don't have any of these devices to supplement the filtration that maybe your main system is providing, consider starting with some portable filtration only devices. Austin Air is one brand that's filtration only. And Honeywell makes filtration only units. And also consider this. A lot of people don't know this. A lot of these units on the purification side have a, a return policy. So 30 day, 60 day, you'll have to check. But the idea is other than maybe a restocking fee you may have to pay, imagine if you wanted to try it and you're like, okay, I spent $600 on this device. It's just not working for me. You might be happy to find out. You may only lose $50 in that deal. And then you can say, okay, lesson learned. I'm going to use filtration only. But that might be revealing to the listener right now saying, Mike, what I'm hearing you say is that you really don't know if purification is going to work for me or not. And the answer to that question is, yes, I don't know if it's going to work for you, but I know filtration is much safer to start with. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, that makes sense with a lot of, and I've, I've read the same thing about the ionization and just the, that it can really, it's literally cleaning the air, but too much of that air can be not so. Um, so we have some of those filtration systems and I just never turn on the ionization one. Like I never, yeah. ever use it because of those same thoughts. So that makes a lot of sense. You know, as we are almost wrapping up, what are some tips? I mean, and you've mentioned so many, but you know, how do we make this chronic illness from possible water damage buildings a lot more affordable and reasonable for the average person? Because the average person cannot afford like all of these things. Yeah, right. Where does a person start? There's the system overwhelm right there. Well, the good news is, is there's a lot of resources. I think it starts with education and finding out what am I getting into? I don't mean to make this a shameless plug for my free iepradio.com, iepradio.com, but there's a lot of wealth of resource of information. Like what what does remediation look like? 
um, four-part remediation series? Um, what does a good inspection look like um, of that nature? And ultimately what this is gonna lead into is if you work in the beginning with a knowledgeable IEP who you trust, who's not out there to get your money, I feel like you could save thousands. I'll give you a one classic example that has everything to do with cost is when you run into the situation where let's say the inspector identifies a mold problem, uh, let's say in the crawl space, but there's not really anything in the home other than cross contamination from the crawl space. Now we wouldn't normally recommend that the homeowners go down in there on their knees, even if they are wearing respirators and Tyvek suits and do that work. But what they'll find is like, oh my gosh, the remediation company wants to charge us. I'm going to make this number up real quick for you. Eight to $12,000 to remediate, clean, sand, my huge crawl space. And they said they're going to charge us $40,000 if they want us to clean the living spaces of my home. And that's where the jaw usually drops. Right. The good news is, is that there are DIY options out there. I won't go into too much detail because it's there's a lot of considerations and it'll just open up a can of certain worms. But products called AeroSolver, A-E-R-O Solver, is one such misting system that's not designed to fog or mist to kill, but to drop particles, dust suppression, DIY, that then you wipe the surfaces afterwards with homeowner products. Like this is not a, you know, buy this $300 per gallon miracle juice type stuff. It's like you could clean your home for one to $2,000 versus that 20 to $40,000 common recommendation from a professional just by following that type of uh, that type of uh, technology, what's the downside then? Then other than the uh, do it yourself, well, it's, it's the amount of labor that you would spend is more. There's preparation involved, and all of a sudden, people are like, "Wow, I really got to think about this. If I am going to do this, I'm going to save money, but I might have to reach out to my community. I might have to reach out to my my church or my friends or whatever, and kind of have a friends helping friends weekend because it can be overwhelming." No, don't know where to start. Not sure which one is a professional should be used for or when you should draw the line. Work with an IEP in the beginning who knows what they're talking about so they can guide you. There's a lot of affordable IEPs that you can work with that charge an hourly rate. And this is not some sort of like a 20 hours into it. And in two hours, you could get a game plan on average that sets you up from start to finish for any sort of problem that you're running into. And they can guide you with who to find local resources. But I admit there are certain situations where people are like, what you just said is great. I can't even afford that. What do I do? And so then we start looking at things like Band-Aid solutions. Can we create a sanctuary for you in one bedroom so that you can at least heal and track your progress and verify that this is working? Can we get you to another location? So we get really creative. As you might imagine, there's different options there. We're not just going to say, oh, well, if you can't afford a $5,000 remediation or a $10,000 remediation, you can't be helped. That's not the truth. When your health depends on it, when you want to get past this chapter in your life, because you will get better, your body is naturally made to heal itself. When you get past this chapter or you want to get past this chapter, people will do whatever it takes to get it done. Don't feel like your hands are tied to just doing some twenty dollars to $60,000. In some cases, you and I know a lot more than that for huge projects and that sort of thing. You don't have to do that. My biggest complaint I have in the mold remediation industry are companies that I know do great work, but they're charging anywhere from sixty dollars to $150,000. I can't afford that. So you, there's hope, 
uh, ieprradio.com. You can start there for awareness. There's other references. I don't know if it's okay if I mention this, but the International Society for Environmentally Acquired Illness, the letters I-S-E-A-I.org has a get help tab. Go get some help and look and see what they have in terms of professionals who can help you and guide you because you will likely save thousands of dollars. And you might even find out that your issue isn't even that bad to begin with. It's an outdoor problem that if you re-cleaned your house or you got rid of a little bit of carpeting or you just changed a few things, that your environment is literally night and day different towards the better. Assumptions that are being made are also issues. 30% of the time I run into clients in calls and they say something, I'm like, I hate to give you this good news, but this is not even close to what we think it is. And I think this is why you're thinking that. And they feel relieved, but they didn't realize they just dragged themselves through a very unneeded stressful event, which a hundred percent of it, I understand because they don't know where to start. I love everything you said. I, I think that it's just so realistic. And um, again, it's just, it's just helpful because I think a lot of people are getting very stressed out with all of the remediation. One of the challenges, I mean, just this being really honest, because I really want to help people is a lot of the people that are better known on the online spaces um, as yeah. remediators or IEPs, they tend to be a lot more expensive. So as a new SIRS diagnosed or chronic illness or Lyme, my first thought is, well, if I just look up on these websites, everyone says IEP, how do I know that the person, while they're good, I don't want to you know, break the bank to afford this person. Like, how do we know that they're good, but they're not as... Yeah money hungry because I mean, again, I, that's the struggle yeah. I've seen an elephant in the room. Yeah. Right. It's an elephant in the room. You're, you're talking, you're bringing up something that some um, interviewers are even afraid to bring up. And I'm glad you're, you're putting no, uh, me to the, <laughs> right. Uh, I love this. Um, well, here's what I can tell you. There's no guarantee in life. I totally hear you. And I see the concern and there is a balance of you get what you pay for. So that plays into it a little bit, but I, I know what you mean. Like beyond that, and there's not a set line. Like, I don't know, is 250 an hour okay for this inspector or, or too little for another? But I struggled with this question so much that I created um, another plug on IEP radio. I created an episode on there about what you should look for in an IEP. I think it's either episode 28 or 29 on IEP radio. I'm, I'm frantically looking right now. It's episode 28. And that is a free thing. And it talks to you about what you should expect. Um, it's more about the methodology because uh, I'll, I'll, I'll say this in a PC way. There are certain, there's an, a couple of companies that have a reputation for kind of doing the whole buffet of sampling. And it's great for data sure. as long as you can pull out a second mortgage. And, and, and I, I exaggerate a little bit, of course, on the second mortgage, but they're not cheap. Six, $12,000, the easy range, uh, no problem. You can get there with this type of sample approach. In episode 28, I kind of walk the client through, here's more of a pragmatic approach that still honors your concerns. We don't want to go backwards. Sure. Uh, the other thing for you to look at is go on ICI again. Again, ISEAI.org. Go to the good help page because what's on there, if you scroll down on the left-hand side, you'll see a document that says it's in kind of bolded blue, uh, finding the right IEP to access your home. And that document was put together by myself and others that to kind of give you uh, a, a way to keep your radar on. Like this person I talked to just seems like they're out to get me and they're, 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 they're saying things without even qualifying them. And it's like, and so a question that would come up normally at this point in the conversation is, is well, what is a fair price then? 
Sure. It's like, well, of course, that depends on your home. Are you in a 400 square foot apartment or a 5,000 square foot three-story home? Um, but I will tell you that a good inspector, and I know a number of them that aren't out to get you, but they're going to be paid for their time. Sure. You're probably going to get somewhere between, on average, $1,800 to $3,000, which will include a moderate amount of sampling and, of course, the inspection of the home, which is just, if not more, important. If you go beyond that, it's not necessarily because they were taking advantage of you, but watch that podcast, read that document, because you need to have your spidey senses on. I can't tell you if what I can't predict what they're going to tell you, but a reasonable game plan is they sit down with you like a doctor does, ask what the problems are, where is there, are there any complaints, known history, and then they sit back down with you and they reasonably say, what are the questions we're trying to answer? I can't tell you what's in the wall by sampling in the air, but maybe I can sample the wall and that doesn't cost $300 per sample. So there's all these pragmatic approaches to where you you don't have to feel overwhelmed. At the end of the day, if you're just not sure that your situation is complicated, work with an IEP like myself and there are others. Go on ICI, you'll see their names. Trustworthy people that you can, you can get involved with and we'll screen them for you. We'll say, we like this. We like this. Make sure they don't do this. I do that with a number because the list on ICI is small. The demand is way much, is way bigger. And oftentimes we're having to find local people in your area that we tell you, here's what they should do. Here's what they shouldn't do. Here's what you should expect. And that's the best security blanket, Judy, I can offer the audience in terms of not feeling like they're going to be taken advantage of. Yeah, I think um, that's really good. I I do believe there's guardrails and tips that you can provide. And it sounds like that podcast episode, as well as that, um, that guidance that you have on that website. And I'll I'll put all of it in your, in the show notes. So thank you for that. Yeah. As we close, where can people find you other than your podcast? Do you have a website, uh, you know, social media? Sure, sure. I, I I keep things relatively simple. Um, uh, my website uh, for work, Environmental Analytics, it's the company name .net. So environmentalanalytics.net. Um, you can learn more about me, information, my background. Uh, there's a contact page. If you're in a, initially interested in a consultation virtually, I do them around the globe, uh, certainly a lot in the States and Canada and other places. Uh, take a look at it and send us, uh, fill out that contact form and we'll respond to you. We'll let you know how we operate, send you a questionnaire and just see if it's a good fit. If it's not, we totally understand. And we do try to help people whenever we can. There's certain unique situations where I don't think we're a good fit, but I can recommend somebody who is. So that would be the best way to get a hold of me for consulting services. And again, don't forget iepradio.com. It's free and there's a wealth of information. You might be able to watch that with uh, your unwilling spouse, or you're just wanting to have more general information to really justify, yeah, this is what we need to do. Because what you and I talked about a little bit offline was a lot of people just kind of have their head stuck in the sand and are not even willing to start because it's either overwhelming the stuff they've read, horror stories and all of that. And I'd like to tell you that it's human nature for people to post horror stories. There are a lot of success stories. I'd argue more than horror stories. They're just not promoted. People don't seem to be as ready to promote positive stuff. But boy, if you mess them up or you take advantage or they have a bad story, they're going to post it all over the map. So have hope that what you're reading is typically is biased. In fact, with love and respect, I'm on many Facebook groups. And I, 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 I'm off and on with my involvement with them. But if you're somebody who is just feeling a little bit overwhelmed, 
Uh, I have found that staying away from that type of thing is actually better than going on them. It doesn't mean that you can't return, but it's meant to help you. And in many cases it is, but a lot of people post negative stuff and it kind of sucks you in. And I don't think you need to be in that mindset is my, my two cents. I fully agree with that. So there were some clients that were just diagnosed with SIRS and they would go into the mold illness groups in the Facebook groups. And, you know, it's a lot of these, I've been on some type of protocol for two years. I'm not much better. And it's a lot of these very difficult stories. And then when you're brand new to this with all the overwhelm of all this new information, it's, it's almost like there's no light at the end of the tunnel. And then I think it so. just crashes their limbic system on top of that. Yeah. And, it's that and limbic system is a big issue, Judy. I mean, I did two interviews with Ashtok Gupta oh, and okay. Annie Hopper on oh, yes, limbic yes. system related stuff because I saw it so much. In fact, in 2019 and 20, uh, if you ask me, Mike, what's the biggest thing that you've noticed and naturally in a related environment, what you're seeing, what's cool, what's hip, anything, I would say the biggest thing I've seen is the power of the limbic system. And I, I'm not just telling that to the audience as a third party observer. I'm talking about that as somebody who's gone through it, been through it, going through it and knows the struggle. Um, our mind and our body is a powerful thing. And when you have people that are throwing out black and white comments in a very gray field about something that's not a, my house is on fire type of thing you need to respond to, you get overwhelmed and it feels overwhelming. And that's just, again, that's just not the normal. Unfortunately, that's what you're reading. And and that's unfortunate. Thank you so much for joining me today. You know, I knew that we would talk a lot about the environment and it's been a very big, difficult rock in this whole SIRS illness and just chronic illness. And I know that everyone that has listened and watched will have a, an amount, immense amount of hope. And I think that is so important in trying to heal these illnesses. So thank you so much for joining me. And I know so many people will be helped from this. You're absolutely welcome, Judy. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Thank you. Okay, guys, I hope that you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. Mike is such a great resource of education and information in terms of how to really support your environment so that you don't suffer from mold illness. The fact that he has struggled on his own and his own experience, it just helps him to empathize a lot more with his clients. And it's why I think he's such a valuable resource. His IEP radio is such an invaluable level of content where it's free and you can learn a lot more about remediation, what to look out for, and even the different testing. I think there's one specific podcast that I always talk about where he talks about the different types of mold testing and what is truly beneficial for you and your circumstance. So I will link to all of that in the show notes, but I hope that this gives you a little bit of hope, especially if you're questioning if you should even get tested for SIRS or chronic inflammation or water damage building illness because of the level of cost or the insurmountable amount of overwhelm that it can bring. The truth is that there's always a way that we can heal and there's always a way that we should have hope because our human bodies are super resilient. I mean, we were designed that way. Okay, guys, make sure to eat a lot of meat. Take care of your bodies because it is the only place you have to live. I will talk to you later. Bye, guys. Thanks for listening to the Nutrition with Judy podcast. If you liked what you heard today, please make sure to leave a five-star review on your favorite podcast app so more listeners like you can find the show. If you want more practitioner care and support, head over to nutritionwithjudy.com groups so you can get more real talk about carnivore, the environment, and root cause healing. 
You can also find my content on Nutrition with Judy's YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Make sure to sign up for my weekly newsletter and learn more about in-depth articles with infographics at nutritionwithjudy.com slash articles. You can find my two books, Carnivore Cure and the Complete Carnivore Diet for Beginners on carnivorecure.com and amazon.com. At the heart of Nutrition with Judy's practice, our mission lies with a deep, unwavering passion for service and community. We will continue to empower you to have the knowledge and tools to live a life nearly symptom-free because we firmly believe in healing and wellness for all.